Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. We're delighted that you've joined us today. We have two very specific program topics today that I think you'll find of interest. Our first guest is Kirk Moulton, who is a licensed clinical acupuncturist. And we're going to be talking about uh, acupuncture in the use of veteran relief of pain, PTSD symptoms, and chronic pain. So we are really excited to talk about this alternative therapy. In the second half of our program, we'll be speaking to Peter Collier, who is a best-selling author of many books that are, are just classics called The Rockefellers, An American Dynasty, The Kennedys, The Roosevelts. But his most recent book called Choosing Courage talks about what turns a person into a hero in a split second and turns them from ordinary to extraordinary. And we are very, very pleased to be having that uh, topic with us now. Both of us are very excited. Jason McNamara is joining us as well today, and we are looking forward to an excellent show with you. Kirk, are you with us? I am. Oh, wonderful. I gave an introduction to you, and I am very excited. Your work in chiropractic care has been with... I, I know I'm so excited to have you with us because chiropractic and other complementary medicine uh, has really started to take over in terms of gaining relief for our veterans and how they are working it, in their lives because sometimes the traditional therapies just do not work for them. And I'm very eager to have our listeners hear about your work. And I, what I didn't mention is that you are in Chicago and you've been treating veterans for many years, and that you're part of a larger network as well. So we'll get into that a little more later. But perhaps you could talk about the overall use of acupuncture in veterans and how that has shown results to you and your other practitioners. Sure. Uh, As you said, I've been doing uh, pro bono work with veterans for uh, over 10 years and I've been working with a group called Acupuncturists Without Borders, which has a number of of, uh, affiliated uh, practitioners around the country. So if uh, the listeners go to acupuncturistswithoutborders.org, they could possibly find somebody in um, their area that could uh, offer them help. But what I use is acupuncture in what's called traditional Chinese medicine, which mm-hmm. has been the, uh, the, the main form of medicine in China for close to 4,000 years. So it's not just acupuncture, but it's also uh, meditation, it's herbs, it's yoga, it's tai chi, it's diet, it's many different uh, sort of facets of a medicine that... Um, is truly holistic and has um, been in use much, much longer than Western medicine has been. Very true. 
So I did not know you did all of those therapies. So how do you use them in conjunction with one another? Well, just like anybody who would go see a doctor, you come up with what the main issues are and what the causes of those issues are, and you come up with a diagnosis, and then you come up with a treatment strategy. Now, certainly uh, many of the veterans that I see uh, are suffering from chronic pain and post-traumatic stress disorder. That Mm -hmm. seems to be the top two on the list. So primarily, uh, that's my focus. And so I will use uh, acupuncture specifically for uh, pain, which uh, it has a long history of of, uh, good use for, and but also for PTSD, which is um, sort of a newer concept in the sense that that we use uh, certain points in the ears, which is called auricular therapy. And uh, this is a system that was actually created by a French MD back in the 50s and has been in use since then for uh, treatment of stress and insomnia and, and other emotional issues. You know, it's funny, Kirk, in the research I was doing prior to this program, I realized that they are now using auricular uh, treatment, trauma pr- protocol, in the battlefield. And yes. that just means to me that it is getting greater acceptance and usage. And as you say, it's been around for thousands of years and proven. But isn't it marvelous that they're finally, I, I say they, the, the medical establishment, are finally recognizing that adding therapies together, using them in conjunction with one another, may lead a veteran to seek care where they've been fed up with something else. So getting them to the door is often the most difficult part for a family member. How do they come to find you? Are they referred? Uh, Are they seeking alternative care? What is the most prevalent means of people coming to you? Most of my uh, patients come to me and are being referred by the local VA centers. So in Chicago, it's... um uh, the uh, Jesse Brown Hospital right in the heart of the city, and then there's another one called Hines out in the west suburbs. Mm-hmm. I would say that's 70%, 80%. The rest of it's word of mouth or people finding me on the Internet. That's terrific. That's terrific. Jason, did you have a question? I'm thinking Jason did not come on. Okay. Um, I will ask you another one then. With the auricular... Oh, now I can. Sorry, I had a problem with, with my headset. I'm, I'm, my, my apologies for that. That's okay. When you were muted, you were muted, but now you're back. Do you have a question for I do. I, yeah, I do, actually. I have a couple, Kirk. Um, you know, it's interesting because this is something that uh, has – I'm actually in the healthcare field, and so I um, work a lot with um, providers and plans and, and uh, case managers and the like. But before I touch on that, I, I wanted to – um, talk a little bit about the per- perceived idea of getting these sort of alternative treatments, right? So um, thinking about it from a veteran's perspective where, you know, these types of treatments, although they're, they're coming about to be somewhat of the norm now, um, have, are still um, in the development stages of, you know, especially around military folks and veterans. And how do you handle this perceived idea of um, going to, to receive alternative treatments 
where historically they're used to going to a provider or going to, you know, going to a facility, receiving services, and then, sure. uh, you know, leaving the facility. You know, this is right. sort of a completely different approach to care. Um, how do you well, handle? Not, how do you handle that? It's not. It's not part and parcel for most people. You know, uh, I think that, that many of the people. Let's take chronic pain. Let's say they come back from um, a war zone. They've been injured, and um, you know they've gotten the typical route of uh, medication, physical therapy, possible surgeries, the rest of it, and they're still in pain. And um, then there's more applications. Most of it is uh, palliative in the sense that it's treating the symptom and it's not getting to the root of the cause, which often has also got a, a psychological element to it as well. And so I think what it, the acceptance on this part of the, the veteran is that they've gotten so frustrated in the sense that um, they've hit a plateau very often that they're much more willing to um, try something new and, and um, you know, do some of the things that uh, they have to do for themselves and they recognize that rather than somebody just constantly giving them something to suppress their symptoms. And, and more often than not, that resonates with people and it can be, um, it can be very, um, uh, a very pivotal moment in, in, in their, um, their healing process once they realize that. And, and so do you have that same sort of approach with the, the care teams that have traditionally um, been used to a certain regimen as well? Well, I don't have a lot of interaction with the care teams, at least from the, the, the typical VA um, system. Um, more often than not, I'm being referred to by the pain clinic or a psychiatrist. And often it's after, you know, uh, there's been a certain amount of frustration uh, that they keep hitting a, a, a wall, or the the, the, the vet is, is uh, you know insisting that there's got to be something else. You know, it's pain management is something that is very difficult to handle around the country with the VAs because there are so few pain clinics. And the fact that they are partaking of these alternative therapies is a very good sign. Even if you're not having communication with the VA, at least you are getting referrals and word of mouth from the, the, the folks who are needing the help. When you're treating someone for the first time, what do you find is the easiest approach to them so that they will accept the care? Or are they coming to you extremely receptive because nothing else has worked? Well, in, in answer to the first part of the question, it's, it's about recognizing that uh, there may not be a quote-unquote answer for this specific problem, but that if I can help them I think we may have lost Kirk. 
I think there's some connectivity problems in Chicago today. Uh, emotional release that that is something that will potentially make their lives a lot easier. I mean, let's face it, many of them have been injured. I've seen... Uh, Kirk, I'm going to have to hold you off here because we've got a break coming up, but hold that thought. You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we will be right back after the break with Kirk Moulton, acupuncturist. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on Toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Familia, faith, identity, tradición. Latina life is never boring, but it can be muy dramática. So how do you coexist between the old school ways of la abuela and the new school life you're creating for yourself without losing your faith, familia, identity, or tradiciones? Welcome to Living Latina with Francesca Escoto, where culture curls and curves collide in one spicy cross-cultural conversation that will leave you begging for mas. Francesca tackles all the important issues, from politics to family values, to religion to, you guessed it, relationships and men. As Chief Everything Officer at the Wow Factor, Francesca is passionate about showing women of all cultures, ages, and lifestyles how to rock what they've got with style, sass, and smarts. Be sure to join her every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time for Living Latina, only on the WooHoo Radio Network. to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. I'm Linda Crater with co-host Jason McNamara and our very special guest, Kirk Moulton, acupuncturist. And um, we had to cut you off at the break. I apologize for that timing. But we were talking about how do vets come into your clinic and are they receptive to care? And are they, are you now looking at a multitude of symptoms that have grown in magnitude or are they truly receptive and open to what relief you may be able to bring them? 
most of the people who come in to see me are very receptive. They've either asked for it from their um, mental health care doctor or from the pain clinic that they um, have been working with in uh, here in Chicago. So uh, a lot of times they're the ones asking for it. And I think it's because they know that long-term use of uh, drugs or other therapies haven't been working for them, and so they feel that it's, it's time for a change. Good. What about um, the generational differences? Do you see that there is a difference between, say, um, World War veterans or Vietnam veterans um, as opposed to modern war veterans? Is there, does it seem to be more receptive? I mean, I guess my bias would be that, um, that the younger veterans may have sort of a more open approach to it, or is it generally stated the same? Actually, it's, it's, it's the opposite, Jason. It's interesting. I think many of the Vietnam veterans, I don't see many more World War or even Korean veterans anymore. Um, but the, the Vietnam vets, I think because they've been through the system of the VA uh, for so many years, it, it, there's kind of a, a sense of frustration or, uh, you know, just the idea that they're, they're looking for anything else that uh, they feel will be able to uh, help them with these chronic issues that they're dealing with. As to the younger veterans, I think that they, certainly they're open to it, um, but, you know, they're also newly back here and they're, and they're using, you know, whatever the VA is, is currently offering them. So I don't see, and, you know, it's a mixed bag. I, I see about 50-50 of, of each group. You know, one of the other things, Kirk, that we often hear as one of the more troubling symptoms that just doesn't have relief is that of insomnia. Do many of them come to you for symptoms such as insomnia or anxiety about sleeping, which, of course, is a vicious cycle? Absolutely. Uh, you know, sleep is a very difficult thing, especially when it's interlinked with pain because the pain will wake you up and then you're up and you're walking around trying to shake off the pain, and then you try to go back to sleep, and now you're up, and so it can become a vicious circle. But, um, again, I use other techniques along with the acupuncture, such as herbs, meditation, tai chi. All these things together, I feel, uh, bring a, a whole new sort of toolbox of, of therapies that people aren't really even aware of. When they think of acupuncture, they just think some guy's going to stick needles in them and, and hopefully they're going to get relief. And it, it takes more than that. It, it truly does. It, it's sort of, you have to understand that sleep is a process and then ultimately uh, you've got to get into a rhythm with it. Very important. You know, I find that um, your, your use of the word toolbox is very interesting because what you're saying is that if the, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that as you apply these various modalities, so the nutrition, the Tai Chi, the meditation, and the acupuncture, you're giving them tools they can use at home, not just in the clinical setting. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And that, to me, I think is the most critical issue of any um, approach to healthcare. Look, the Latin root of doctor is teacher. Mm-hmm. All right? And so if somebody can be taught 
how to help themselves to deal with pain, to deal with anxiety or PTSD, so that that can help them sleep better, mm-hmm. that then they'll be eating better, and then they'll maybe get out and start exercising. So I'm a big fan of momentum. And mm. so if we can get that momentum going in the right direction for somebody, they'll see that ultimately, as I like to say, we have to be our own doctor in this life, or somebody else will be. If you just want to submit to whatever somebody's saying to you and saying, this is what's wrong, and here's the medicine, or here's the therapy, or here's the surgery, then that's okay, but it doesn't always turn out the way you want to. And that's why I believe it's so important for people to be involved in their own Healthcare and well-being. Amen. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that's a trend that we start to see um, coming to to bear fruit. I think, um, you know, the old days of sort of um, leaning um, solely on the practitioner or the care team is is slowly fading. In that, you know, we see this with healthcare reform, and we see a lot of pieces where the the patient becomes sort of the center of attention, and the patient is now actively more engaged with their, um, their, their care and they want access to their information and they want to learn about what's happening to them, both in the context of a specific diagnosis, but also what the care team is doing and the processes that they're doing to actually deliver care. I, I do have a question, Kirk, about the, um, the role of sort of the family in this process. And I think, um, you know, while the engaging with the veteran obviously is very important and that's, that's sort of why we're all here, but um, how do you see the families playing a role in sort of this piece? And I think you talked about um, the role of a teacher, and I think there's, um, you know, <laughs> running squad leaders, that's a mentoring organization. We, we try to develop teachers, if you will, and so um, something near and dear to my heart. But how do you educate and work with the families? As I, sort of uh, well, for starters, I'm, I'm typically treating spouses, other people within the family as well. Uh, it's it's critical that the family members understand what somebody's going through and they themselves suffer as a result of, of these people. And, and I've seen family members get their own level of PTSD trying mm-hmm. to help somebody who has very serious conditions and they feel helpless and, um, Often, it's funny, sometimes the vet will come in and they'll go, I don't really believe in this stuff, but, you know, my wife could sure use it, and I'll just end up treating the wife instead. So it's interesting sometimes how, how, how it will turn out, because I, my practice is open not only to veterans, but to their, all their family members. That's superb. I'm yeah, sorry, Jason, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, sorry, sorry, we over-talked to each other. But, um, no, that's an interesting perspective in that um, they'd be receptive for their family members or, or those near and dear to them to receive the treatment, but then um, hesitant um, for themselves. Is there is there something, is, in that scenario, would you actually sort of engage with, um, just to your example, would you engage with the, the wife first and then um, use her uh, as sort you know, of the stepping stone? I just put that out as an example that it has happened occasionally, but... More often than not, the veteran who's coming in is, is getting the treatment, and then they'll often tell their wife, their son, their brother, or whatever, saying, hey, you know, this really helped me for my low back pain. 
and I know that you've got problems uh, with, you know, sinus problems. You should come in and see this guy. And so I'll see them, too, for their sinuses. You know, I think so. anytime you can involve a family in care and when there's a positive momentum, I love that you use that word. When there's a positive momentum, it tends to breed positive outcomes. And there's no question that the mind is very, very powerful. And so the meditation that you mentioned, as well as positive results, really with the family members can truly help, it seems, with the, the veterans. As you say, the chronic pain is is difficult. What is a normal course of therapy, a length of time? I realize it varies, but is there a range? If somebody's going to come in and get acupuncture, typically they're going to see results in the first two to three weeks. Mm. So I'll say come in twice a week, let's see how you do, how you respond, Mm-hmm. And then we'll reevaluate after, let's say, that three-week period. Then, if we're working, then typically we're going to go another month or two. Best-case scenario, somebody would feel, let's say, fifty to seventy percent better. Right? And if you got chronic pain and it's due to an injury, seventy percent would be a, a, a great benchmark mm-hmm. to, to strive for. Um, but then there's such a large range of different types of conditions, injuries, and, you know, if somebody's uh, got uh, TBI or whatever else, it adds a whole other level of complexity to it. That's interesting you mentioned TBI. Are you using acupuncture for TBI or symptoms of TBI? Talk a little bit more about that, if you would, because I know that concerns many of our listeners. Right, right. No, it can help a lot. And um, so I urge people to uh, contact acupuncturists without borders. Um, They're on the web, and there's about 40 different clinics around the country that do offer various types of um, therapies, And, you know, they're not all the same as as my clinic, but I'm sure that that they can get good care and be able to, um, you know, again, I see this medicine as a spark plug to Mm -hmm. initiate the momentum that we were talking about, right? Healing is, in my opinion, the the body is a self-healing instrument. And if we can find the, the, the right ways to jumpstart that process, it can be quite amazing and uh, work hand-in-hand with the other things that they're doing, whatever it might be. Fantastic. Kirk, thank you so much. For those interested in more information, go to healingjunction.com to learn more about Kirk's practice and to acupuncturewithoutborders.com for... Dot uh, org. Dot org. Pardon me. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. 
Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Do you want to get a contact high? Tune in for fun, inspiration, and motivation every Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time. Learn how to maximize your mojo and just say no to the status quo. Get inspired and motivated by a fun-loving coach who knows what it's like to get through this thing called life. With your high-on-life coach, Audra Irwin, each Friday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time and 12 noon Eastern. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are delighted to be back with you. And our second guest on the program today is a best-selling author. Peter Collier has written some amazing books, The Rockefellers, The Kennedys, The Roosevelts, and many more. But his most recent book, called Choosing Courage, is an amazing book, and I've read lots of it, not the full book, but most of it. And it's about inspiring stories of ordinary people who in crisis situations became extraordinary. And he drew a common thread among them. And, and frankly, we could talk for hours about this book. But we have Peter on today, and we're going to ask him a number of questions about what turns a person into a hero. And we're delighted to welcome Peter Collier to Military Network Radio. Good morning. Morning. Glad to be with you. We're delighted to be with you. And for our listeners, Peter's on the West Coast, so this is very early. And he's having his coffee, I imagine, while we are starting our day. And welcome, Peter. And thank you for getting up so early to do the program. No, it's good. It's bracing. It's good for me, my uh, morale. Bracing. I like that. Excellent. Can you talk about what prompted you? to gather these amazing stories for this book? Well, I, uh, among the other books that I wrote that, uh, that you didn't mention was a book called Medal of Honor. Uh, ah, and right. It was uh, a book I kind of lucked into. I, I mean, I feel I was lucky in every way. A uh, uh, nationally known photographer named Nicholas Del Calzo had gone around and taken formal po- uh, portraits photographic portraits of all the living Medal of Honor recipients, and he needed somebody to write the text to go mm. along with the, uh, the photograph. The photograph was worth a thousand words, uh, but the thousand words were pretty important. So by just a series of accidents, I got chosen to do uh, that book. And so I, uh, I guess along with the, the photographer, I'm one of the few people to have interviewed all the living Medal of Honor recipients. Too few of them now. They're disappearing day by day. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, enough of them to 
you know, leave a huge mark on me. And, uh, you know, I would be sitting writing these stories as I, you know, learned them from these guys and uh, kind of tears running down my cheeks and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, feeling the power of courage, the fo- power of sacrifice. And so uh, I decided, along with the support of the Medal of Honor Found- Foundation, uh, which is the sort of umbrella group for the Medal of Honor recipients, decided to do a sort of similar book uh, slanted toward young adults, figuring that they really, in a sense, needed these lessons more than, than, than you know, people of, uh, of mature years do. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it's, they're getting, they get messages about, shall we say, capitulation, appeasement, cowardice all the time taking the easy way out. And so I, I selected a handful of these Medal of Honor recipients, and because courage is contagious and because the Medal of Honor recipients themselves see that, that courage is something that doesn't exist simply on the battlefield, but it exists, you know, in the battlefield of everyday life, they themselves over the years have established a, a uh, little sub-foundation that awards... Uh, medals to courageous civilians. Uh, and so I included some of them in the book uh, just to show that you really don't have to fall on a grenade or, you know, uh, take out 10 or 12 enemies single-handedly to be courageous. That courage is something that you locate within yourself uh, by listening to, to the still small voice Mm-hmm. that exists in all of us. And it's also something that you learn about by the way we learn about things, watching other courageous people, watching them, reading about them, thinking about them. And so that's what this book is really all about, um, the example of courage, the, the contagion of courage, uh, and in a sense the glory of courage. You know, Aristotle uh, once called it, uh, the king of virtues, and he said, in effect, it's the most important of all virtues because without courage, the other virtues really don't exist. That is, it's the fountainhead of all the other uh, important virtues that make our lives worth living and make them worth living for other people. You know, I'm I'm so touched by the fact that you really did write this with young people, teens in mind. Because you're right, examples of courage are around us, but they don't get much play. And they may not feel that this, as you said, it may only think it's battlefield uh, courage that is shown. But there is courage among us each day. Perhaps you can share one of the civilian stories that might uh, spur some of our audience to understand what you're meaning when you're saying you chose some extraordinary civilians as well. Well, what a, one of the stories that has real power, um, I, live up, I live in the foothills of California, actually, and this, this occurred, uh, this story occurred within, you know, 50 miles of me, and I, I remember reading it at the time as a, as a news item, and uh, then heard about it again more formally through the Medal of Honor people and the Medal of Honor Foundation, and it involves a woman, a 50-year-old woman who is a physical education teacher at a middle school in near Reno, California, uh, near Reno, Nevada, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, she came to school one morning, was preparing her classes. When she sees the children that are there already start to scatter, she hears gunshots, and she sees one kid down and uh, uh, wounded, and uh, the other's hiding. And she locates all the other teachers, do the prudent thing, which is they get into their rooms and lock the doors. Uh, most of them taking students with them, of course, but some not. And this woman sees the, the gunman, a young disturbed, she knew he was a disturbed young man, uh, with a rifle, and goes up to him, interposes her body between his gun and all the other kids who are trying to hide uh, under furniture and uh, in a kind of common uh, room like a lunch room. And she puts her uh, body between them and his gun and hugs this kid mm. and hugs him hard and talks to him <clears throat> and tells him that he's going to be all right, that he can't do this. And uh, gradually she talks the gun away from him. And as a result, um, what was going to be one of those headlines that everybody reads about with 10 or 12 or 14 kids lying dead in a schoolyard turns out to be something quite different. Uh, one one student wounded, and um, uh, the school saved by the mm-hmm. act of one courageous woman. Wow, that's an amazing story. That's just amazing. I, I'm curious to know, in your journey of sort of discovering um, these stories of courage. If you were able to see some common, you know, clearly lined out um, traits of those that experience courage, or or is it something that is, um, you know, so unique that it surfaces at you know, um, at all levels at all different times? Um, you know, are there trends or are there things that you can connect between these that these folks that were interviewed? Well. The situations in which the, these military engagements that I write about, and for that matter, the civilians, are so different um, that it seems at first that each one of them is pretty much sui generis. That is a thing in itself and, you know, a, a situation that can't be repeated ever again. Uh, but I think there are some, some common elements, and that is, you know, Each one of these people saw, however microscopic the moment of realization was, however quickly it occurred, however much in a flash, um, you know, the perception of what was needed occurred, each one of these people had this sense, you know, and, and they describe it differently. You know, the military on the battlefield is often described in kind of time-lapse, you know, slow motion, things slow down, that sort of thing. Uh, but each of them describe a sort of realization, you know, as, as the great Hebrew philosopher Hillel said, if not me, who? If not now, when? Mm-hmm. You know, that sense that it's up to me right at this moment, uh, you know, I'm a limited person. I'm a, you know, 
a partial person. I'm an unfinished person. I'm not a hero, but it, it's up to me at this moment to do something. Uh, and just that sense of inner compulsion to act, uh, that's the thing, actually, I think is, you know, at, at the base of all of this. It's it's not a thinking process. It's It's sort of like almost like muscle memory. And... You know, in the in the case of the military people, it's muscle memory that has been created by drill, by repetition, that sort of thing, in, in large part. Uh, but in small part, it is something that exists inside inside this, you know, human being. Many of these people said they felt that, you know, that God was choosing them to, to do this. Uh, I tell the story, actually, of one of, one of the great... Medal of Honor recipients, but the one story that always uh, moves me almost beyond my capacity to, to talk about it for some reason, about this guy in World War II named Desmond Doss, who was the first conscientious objector to get to receive a medal. I think there's been one since, but he was the first. And he was a guy who was uh, uh, very conflicted about being in the war, but he wanted to serve after Pearl Harbor. So he went in with the, you know, the knowledge and the foreknowledge that he's going to have a rough time, and uh, he made it clear he wouldn't carry a weapon, but he'd do anything else. And, you know, his when he was in training, the unit considered him a weirdo, wanted to get rid of him. They petitioned the command to get him out of their unit because he was sitting around reading the Bible all the time. And uh, anyway, he withstood that. He went through through the Pacific with these guys, they learned to respect him. And, uh, you know, in, the, in, in many respects, he was, he was never one of the guys, but he was uh, somebody that they just, you know, learned was going to be there for them. And uh, how much he was, he was there for them uh, became clear uh, you know, in the Battle of Okinawa, he was... They Peter, were, I'm yeah. so sorry, but I have to break in. We're on break. Okay. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. 
Marla believes that with the right mindset, anything is possible. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka inspires you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the million-dollar mindset. Marla will inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power. Tune into the million-dollar mindset for heartwarming stories with Marla Tabaka. Learn tips and tricks to building a successful business and unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. For more information on the Million Dollar Mindset, go to our website, MarlaTabaka.com. That's M-A-R-L-A-T-A-B-A-K-A.com. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are talking again in continuation of the remarkable story of Desmond Doss. You can continue with your story, please, Peter. It was amazing. You had him reading, and people were not sure he could help. uh, Deep South, uh, considered a strange duck at bare minimum by his, his men in his unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of establishes himself. He's their medic. He goes out, you know, serves them, uh, feeling that he's serving the Lord as he serves them. Mm-hmm. Um, during the engagements they in, they have across the Pacific, then at Okinawa, their unit assaults a kind of a high rise, and it's what would be called technically an escarpment. Comes up to the top of it, fights its way up to the top of this heavily fortified escarpment gets up there and is met by an overwhelming force of Japanese and just they get slaughtered and everybody retreats except for Doss. Mm-hmm. He's up there, there are seventy five guys lying there wounded. He won't go down. He insists on roping every one of them down by himself under heavy fire. And he told me as he did, each time he got one down he'd say, God, please let me get another one. Mm-hmm. God, please let me get another one. And he stood up there for an hour getting these guys down. He got every one of them down. And, you know, it it was an astonishing act. But here, this is somebody who felt that he was in the hand of God, for instance, when he was engaging in this act, this courageous activity. Other of the, the, men, <clears throat> the men I write about are less uh, certain about that but more certain, this compulsion, this sense of compulsion that if I do not do something at this very minute, you know, there's going to be uh, hell that will break loose that I can prevent. That sense of duty, that sense of uh, almost, but almost like a compulsion to, to mm-hmm. act. Uh, yeah. I think that's, you asked me about the, the characteristics. That's the thing that unites all of these guys. Sure. The need to act, the compulsion to act. And, you know, not to act because it's a moral thing to do uh, necessarily, but to act because it is the only thing to do and that, you know, it, it just needs to be done. Sure. You know, I, I think it's interesting, um, you know, being a veteran myself and um, for our veteran listeners or even our active duty military members, um, you know, we try to keep those stories very much alive with our military tradition. You know, I think um, every boot camp, um, doesn't matter what service you've actually been a part of, teaches some of these stories. And we, we keep them alive uh, through the storytelling and we rely on our 
senior military members to pass it on to the junior folks. And as the junior folks progress through the ranks, they pass on the stories. And we keep these stories alive in the military to constantly remind us about um, our brothers and sisters that have gone before us and that have acted in such courage. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, extrapolating these stories and passing them back into the community. Um, you talked a little bit earlier on about, um, you know, what drives this and how it's very contagious and these stories can really bind to people in ways that connect on a, on a very, very different level. How do we bring that back into the community in a setting where maybe folks aren't necessarily put in situations where they feel like maybe that they're not put in situations on a regular basis that require them to act courageous? How do we pass that along and educate that community and make this even more contagious, if you will? Well, I think you've put your finger on it. I mean, you know, I think the military, you're right, does make an effort to pass this, these legacies on. Many of the the uh, Medal of Honor recipients that I talked about from the, our recent wars had actually heard <coughs> stories told about Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, one of them who threw himself on a grenade had heard about all those, you know, stories about men in World War II particularly, who threw themselves on grenades. I mean, that, that was part of a, a sort of army tradition. And I think, you know, when, I'm, when I, I've, I've reached the age when I start sentences now with the words, when I was a boy, sorry <laughs> to do that, but when I was a boy, these Medal of Honor recipients were household names. People, you know, like Jimmy Doolittle, uh, you know, names that have since been forgotten, like John Bassalone, uh, uh, these were these were household names. They were, you know, uh, and not just during the war. I mean, after the war, this this tradition has kind of left us, I'm afraid. And so the stories we tell are about, you know, rock groups, uh, movie stars. We live in a celebrity culture, mm. and you know, uh, <clears throat> the stories we tell are about. Uh, extravagant divorces, extravagant affairs, uh, a lot of money being made in uh, in uh, suspect deals and that sort of thing, rather than stories of courage. And so I, I actually wrote this, but I, I'm under no illusions that this book is going to turn the tide. But I think that the storytelling we do is the is is really the wrong storytelling. I mean, since time out of mind men and women who sat around campfires uh, telling stories about heroes. And we've lost that uh, ability uh, because we've substituted these plasticized uh, celebrity objects for the real heroes. And, and we have to somehow start talking about courage in our lives and, you know, rewarding courage and uh, uh, privileging as to use a PC term, privileging courage uh, as part of our storytelling. I mean, I, I wish there were uh, a, a more comprehensive and foolproof and scientific way to accomplish this, but I'm afraid there isn't. There's no way of inserting this sort of knowledge into our young people other than to tell them about the people that have done this and urge them to be those people in the making, those people ready only for the instant to call forth the things that they know are within them. You know, it's interesting that you bring up John Bassalone because um, 
you know, I was stationed at um, Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton, California, in Southern California, and um, there's, you know, he has part of the base uh, named after him, right? And so, you know, it's interesting to make those connections and to make sure that um, I think with the point that you're getting at is that these stories and the legacies live on um, through that, right? And I think um, it, we have lost touch. I mean, as you were talking to me about that, I was thinking about how I engage with my nephews and um, how I engage with other young folks in trying to communicate that story. And I, I myself uh, can't even think of one time that I've actually, so I'm sort of guilty of it as well as I'm talking to you, um, where I've actually been able to lift things that I know about, even you know, from the men that I served with in the military and be able to pass that along. Um, to our younger generation, so it, you, you definitely put that into perspective for well, me. Well, it, it is it is a problem, particularly because you know I think there's a you know we haven't had a return to the hostility uh, uh, toward the military that we experienced as a culture in the, in the '60s. We have, on the other hand, we you know we have people who sort of tolerate you know the politically left part of our culture tolerates the military. They would you know, like them to be, you know, um, guarding the Arctic Circle against global warming or something like that. But they tolerate them. And so uh, we're ahead of the game uh, from what we were a generation ago in that respect. But I think that there's um, been a sort of compartmentalization of military virtue, if you will. That is, <clears throat> the feeling, you know, it's necessary that these people be courageous and one thing or another, but they should kind of uh, maintain themselves inside the military sphere and not have their their virtues their actions leak over you know or be part of as it were the normal uh, day-to-day sphere of normal life so i mean we don't for instance have these these young men and women who have acted with incredible heroism in iraq and afghanistan we don't see them as the sort of models uh, there's, there, I think there's, they're seen as freaks in some sense by the uh, mainstream, if you want to call it that culture. Good freaks, you know, admirable freaks, but you know, they're not us because we're not we're not ever going to experience that world, that military world, because you know uh, that's for volunteers, and most of sure. us are not volunteers and. It's a very odd and disturbing situation in many respects because uh, the lessons that people have learned from warriors since, uh, you know, cavemen uh, protected their their group, their clan against wild beasts. Those lessons that were written on walls uh, by people, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Uh, or tens of thousands, anyhow. Um, you know they've been they've been lost. I mean, we don't we don't write our, our heroes' stories on the walls of our culture anymore, and that that's what we have to start doing. It seems to me. I, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you make that connection about um, how there isn't actually a connection with those that are in our community and those that have served previously. I think um, you know how do we connect to the community in a way that makes them feel like they can resonate with these stories. Uh, I mean, I think to your point about the jumping on the grenade and the culture, you know, it very much was the culture. And, um, you know, there, when you have that sort of culture, it's easy to foster 
um, these courageous behaviors. But I, I think um, taking that out of the military, for example, and trying to bring that into the community, I think there's very, very few people that can actually assimilate with that. You know, Jason, I think it also boils down to what Peter's talking about. It's a selflessness. And we are, as he mentioned before, a fairly selfish society at this point. So it's a selflessness to help others on a grander scale. And so you mentioned that you had not told your nephews, for example. Perhaps we need to bring back the oral narrative at our dinner tables, at our holidays, and to tell about these stories. Certainly we will make certain that our listeners know about this book, Peter, because if contagion comes from courage... We hear about all these other terribly contagious things, but to catch courage, that would be an amazing thing if we understood selflessness, duty, a compulsion to act, running toward the trouble, the only thing to do. And I I think it would be a marvelous thing. We have about a minute and a half to go. I would love it if you would close us with your thoughts about how you believe we can best foment this into our communities. Well, I think um, I think it has to be really. Uh, if I wanted to do it, if I wanted to make these uh, virtues resonate in our community, the virtue of courage, particularly, I, I think I would establish units of study in our uh, secondary schools, which is where this is really needed. Where you know the call to courage comes every day in a, you know in very small ways whether to to engage in the bullying that the majority of people are doing against some helpless kid uh, I think units of study units where these examples otherwise that would be lost or um, never spoken of are given to these kids because they they the, the schoolyard is a battleground these days unfortunately and they need the help there That's what I do. Peter, thank you so much. We clearly need more time with you. (laughs) Okay, some other time. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank you. G-I-N-E-T dot com forward slash military network radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your outlook and future. Thank you for joining us.